exciting. Last week, we talked about the Garden of Gethsemane experience. And this week, we're going to talk about the crucifixion, but I may discuss this in a way that that you might not have considered it before. That's my hope. I'm not coming up with something new, but giving you maybe a, a better way to look at the crucifixion. Historically in churches, we have viewed the crucifixion through the brutality, through the physical brutality that Christ suffered. I grew up listening to sermons about the minute details of what a crucifixion entailed, what, uh, what, what it, the, the brutality that Christ's physical body suffered. Uh, we've all seen, I, I could probably say most of us have seen the Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's version of the crucifixion that focused on the physical brutality. I'm becoming uh, more of the opinion that if we only focus on the physical brutality of Jesus, we've missed 75% of the story. And, and so we're going to look at this this morning. And this is going to be a different sermon. This, uh, we will laugh a little bit together, but just because I'm an idiot. Uh, but but this will be a different sermon in the, in the sense that I'm trying this morning to get us to grasp in our middle-class American cushy lifestyle, what the Savior did for us. Sometimes I think, sometimes I think because we live in a Mayberry neighborhood that it's hard for us to understand. And so we're gonna lean into the crucifixion, not so much the brutality, but, but the main point of what was happening. Uh, and so we're gonna look at Matthew's gospel Matthew records, Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 through 51. Why don't you stand in honor of reading the word? And uh, you can see it on the screen or you can um, find it in the, in the Bible app on your phone. You can also find notes for today in that Bible app. You can go to Hope Community Church app and find it there as well with notes. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 45 and read through verse 51. Somebody say amen if you're ready. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma, sabachthani. I messed that up the first service too. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, hey, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that worked into our calendar is a specific time of year where we focus on what you've done. Thank you, God, that we don't just hurry through our schedule and forget that you were, that you were made sin who knew no sin. 
God, I pray with your presence here in our in our gathering, God, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, there's people who've walked in this building that you've been preparing to hear about your goodness. Lord, there's others that have walked in this building that have struggled with how you could be so good to them. I pray today, God, that you'd reveal yourself to them. That your presence would be strong with us today. Thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you look at the four gospel accounts from the what we call the triumphal entry, Jesus entering into Jerusalem for the last time and, and, um, and leading up to the crucifixion. It is a lot of material. It's a lot of detail. You have him instructing the disciples on the Last Supper and eating the Last Supper with them and then walking out um, to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we talked about last week, and and how the anguish that came on Christ in the garden, the disciples wrestling with falling asleep. And, and last week, we got right to the end of our conversation last week, and it was, it was Jesus being arrested. Judas had betrayed him, uh, completed the task. A large group of people came to arrest him. And so we're going to fast forward just a little bit from that point. Jesus is ushered in between different, let's say, judges. And um, if you want to call it an illegal trial, even to Jewish standards, put on trial, convicted, brought before the Roman governor. The Jews at that time couldn't crucify anybody without permission. The Romans were the ones that would crucify. So Jesus ends up before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate... I would say, as a Roman, I don't know that he actually cared one way or the other, but but um, did seem a little bit concerned with justice and couldn't figure out why the Jews wanted to crucify him. Why would you want to crucify him? It doesn't seem like he's done anything wrong. There's two other men scheduled to be crucified that day. Actually, probably uh, three uh, with a guy named Barabbas who on any other day on any other day but the day Jesus was to be crucified, Barabbas would have went to the cross with a cheering crowd. But on that day, the, the Jewish rulers worked up the crowd to the point to have Pilate release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. There's a lot going on in this story. Pilate's wife has a dream that she ends up being like troubled enough to go to her husband and say, don't, don't have anything to do with this man. Pilate washes his hands symbolically of the whole circumstance and the Jews cry out, crucify him. He has him beat mercilessly. And then they um, ridicule him, mock him, put a crown of thorns on him and they begin the procession out to Golgotha to hang him on a cross. 
Jesus would carry the, verti- the horizontal portion of the cross on his back until he was unable, and they would grab another man, Simon, who would pick it up and carry it the rest of the way. At about 9 o'clock in the morning, they would hook him up in the traditional fashion to the cross, elevate him. He would have had nails driven through his hands and his feet to hold him up on that cross, and he would hang there. In between two people who had been rightly convicted. If you look at the gospel accounts, one of those criminals would ridicule Jesus, and the other one, realizing who Jesus was, would say, hey, would you remember me today? Boy, there's hope all the way to the end, isn't there? Jesus' response to him is, today you will be with me in paradise. There's some things that happen at noon that we're going to talk about. From nine to noon, three hours, it seems like what we would call, if you were Roman, if you were living 2,000 years ago, if you were Roman, it would seem to be from nine to noon a normal crucifixion. Albeit there was a sign above Jesus' head, this is the king of the Jews. Other than that, it would seem to be a normal thing. Three men hanging on crosses waiting and everybody else waiting for them to die. The average Roman probably wouldn't have known about the sham trial, probably wouldn't have known that, that they probably just wouldn't even have cared. But, but at 12 o'clock, everybody in the land would soon figure out that this was not a normal crucifixion. At 12 o'clock, Matthew chapter 27, verse 41 records that darkness fell over the whole land. Now, some people have tried over the years to explain this away as, a, as, as an eclipse or some sandstorm that came up. Or I would make the point that it wasn't an eclipse. At that time of the year, they've proven that that. It was a full moon and that there wasn't an eclipse on that day. This was a supernatural sign from God that the judgment of the Father was coming upon this place. That if you are going to crucify Jesus for the sins of all mankind then the judgment of God would then have to be present at that moment. Not just the judgment of Jews or Romans, but the judgment of the Father would have to be laid upon him. And when you flip back to the Old Testament, you find out that darkness was a symbol of judgment. If you go to the Exodus story, actually, at at kind of the end of the plagues that that God pours out on, on Egypt to get Pharaoh to release the Israelites from Egyptian bondage, the second to last... Plague was the plague of darkness. The whole land of Egypt was tossed into absolute pitch black darkness. And then the next final plague, the next final thing was the Passover where they would kill the lamb and put the blood over the doorpost that we talked about last week. And the death angel would pass over those families. So you have darkness and then you have sacrifice. You have darkness in the Exodus story. The judgment of God coming on a nation. You have darkness... And then you have the very next thing, the lamb being slaughtered for salvation. 
it's important now to recognize that now Jesus is hanging on the cross at noon. I believe, I, I, I believe this is what happened. Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin. So I think from, I think from 9 to 12 was Jesus humanly hanging on the cross and then at 12 o'clock the man who knew no sin became sin and the judgment of God was poured out on him. Now, if you'd lived in that land, this wasn't your first crucifixion, but this was absolutely the first crucifixion that the lights got shut out at noon. So something different is happening. They're, they're, people are starting to realize, like, what, what is going on? Now, it, it, you and I, you and I, if it, was, if it was just a natural occurrence, like it was an eclipse, your, 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 your phone app, you, you know, your, your weather app would have went off, and you would have gotten a, a notification that, hey, you know, at 12 o'clock, there's going to be an eclipse. Don't go outside. It's so dangerous. I mean, that's how soft we are today. If it's dark, don't go outside. But can you imagine being a person or in that area at that point in time? She's just like, hey, do you know, do you know, do you know why it's dark? You know, what, what's happening? I think it's at this time that some of the soldiers around the cross start going, hey, amen. I've done a lot of these. It's never gotten dark at noon. Something, something's different about this guy in the middle. Something's happening. Something is, something is different about this guy. Now, I want to, I want to make a little argument here and, and try to, try to walk you through a couple things because I think, I think there's a reason why we typically only focus on the physical suffering of Christ. And I think the reason we typically only focus on the physical suffering of Christ is because our view, our, our, our knowledge of sin or our opinion about sin is actually very limited. We don't, we don't really understand. And so I want to, I want to kind of walk us through this thing and, and see if we can, we can land on a, on a thing here at the end. The crucifixion was the physical mechanism that God chose to outwardly show his judgment on Christ. The one who was no sin took on, became our sin. So, so it had to be that way. But if you only focus on the physical suffering of Christ, you will miss the majority of what God was doing that day. And the reason why I believe that we only focus on the physical suffering of Christ is because of this. None of our sin is that bad. Now, now everybody should have said amen about that. I'd be like, hey man, I like this church. This is awesome. He just said none of my sin was that bad. Yeah, this is great. Okay, follow this logic. Watch how this works. Okay, we're all from kind of the same area. We're, if, if, you, if you're in this church right now, you probably live within 30 minutes. Maybe some of you drove a little farther than that. Or, or you're in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, which is Mayberry. Like Hedgesville and Berkeley Springs were like Mayberry, USA. You know, you still know the principal of the school. You still know that you go down, talk to the teacher if there's a problem. You still, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just, man, we go down the 7-Eleven hangout. 
That's why people move here, isn't it? Because it's just safe. You don't have to lock your doors at night. Oh, you live in that neighborhood. I heard some laughing over here. They were like, you don't know where I live. (laughs) Okay, maybe you lock them sometimes. But that's why people move to our area. So here's an assumption. Here's an assumption we can make. Okay, sitting in a room like this, I could say we all have sin in our life that we're okay with other people finding out. Like if you found out I lost my temper on the way to church, you wouldn't be like, well, I'm not going back to that church anymore. Pastor's got a temper problem. No, it'd be like, hey man, I get it. I get it. We all have sin like that where we're not really worried about people finding out. Like I was going 105 and a 55. If I said it to the right group, they'd be like, bro, how'd you do that? So there's that category of sin, but it's the sin that all of us know each other do. Then there's a category of the sin you'll never tell anybody about. Okay. We all have those too, right? Amen. Amen. Don't look at your spouse right now. What you ain't telling me. Don't, don't do that. But it's true. We all have sin in our life that we've never told anybody. Is that fair to say? Now, I know there's some of you sitting here like, I'm an open book. No, you're not. There's sin you ain't even told Jesus about. So we all have that in common as well. Can we agree? Here's what we also have in common. Because we are middle class America and we're, we're in Mayberry because this is our existence, there's... I think it's safe to say that there's also a a category of sin that none of us would even consider. As far as I know, there are no serial killers in here. I'm just saying, I need to put a little bit of disclaimer in there because I don't know, but I think I know. Everybody just went. Go get the kids, honey. I I don't think we can stay. But as far as I know, I think there's probably a whole list of sins that if we did a, if we whiteboarded it and we did the whole list of, I think there would be a list of sins that we could say, nobody in the building's ever done that. No, there's no Jeffrey Dahmers in the building today. Some of the young people don't know who that is, but trust me, you don't want to know who that is. There's none of that like that. There's no, there's no brutal dictators in the room that are, you know, there's nobody like that. There is a group of sin that I think if we listen them out, we could get a whole list of sin that no one in here has done. All right. So then what happens is because we're not that bad. Come on. Let's be honest. Because we're not that bad. Because after all, you're... You're a good dad, you're a good mom, you're a good employee. You're like, you know, like 80%, 85%. Some of you even up in the 90s, you're pretty good. You know what I mean? You might have a, you might have a spot every now and then that needs a little polishing. But for the most part, we're middle America good. We're not doing crazy stuff. We're not showing up on the news we're not going to try. We're not. Most of us, this, we can make a list of all the things nobody would ever do in our community. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, that would never happen in my neighborhood. 
So because of that, we can't even fathom what happened on the cross. Because most of the sin we experience is stuff that other people, we would just kind of maybe even overlook. Can I be honest? Oh, man, it wasn't that big a deal. Don't even worry about it. So then we go to the cross and we go, man, could you, can you believe they beat him like that? I've, I've even heard preachers say crucifixion is the worst way possible you can, a human can ever die. And I'll be honest with you, I'm a very linear, logical thinker. I started thinking a long time ago, like, really? Like, I've read the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. I can assure you that there's worse ways to die. I can assure you that. I can assure you that people have suffered physically. Come on, can, we, can you lean in for a second? People have suffered physically worse than Jesus suffered physically on the cross. It only took six hours for him to die. Nine to three, and he's done. There have been people who have suffered for months and months and months of brutality for the sake of Christ. And so what we do as the church is we focus on the physical brutality. And we say, look at the physical pain. Because we can't fathom the pain of sin. Because after all, our sin's not that bad. So there's like a breakdown in the understanding. Oh, look at the physical. Look at the Mel Gibson version. Look at this crazy beating. And I can understand that. But we, we can't grasp because our sin is never that big of a deal. Because our sin is never that big of a deal to us or anybody else because we're all just doing the same thing. And if it's acceptable, if it's all the same thing, then it's not that big of a deal. So I know he went to the cross and I don't, I understand the physical pain. In a room this size, I'm sure there's people who have had chronic physical pain in your life. Um. By the way, as your body gets older, that's probably typical. Amen? I got a pain in my neck, and it's not anybody related to me. It's just an actual pain in my neck. Um, I would venture to say in here that some of you who've had very difficult chronic pain in your life, you know what it's like to suffer physically. You know what it's like for pain to be a constant part of your day. I would like to pose to you this idea, though. There is a pain greater than physical pain. It's called agony. And I have sat by people who have been in unimaginable physical pain. And in the midst of that physical pain, they'll either, they can lose a spouse or a child or a relative And all of a sudden, that physical pain that consumed 90% of their thought process disappears in the agony of real pain. All of a sudden, the conversation isn't about the back anymore. It's about the loss. All of a sudden, the conversation is not about is not about what has consumed them for 10 years. It's about, I didn't know I could hurt this bad. 
There is a difference between physical pain and agony. And if you go back, if you go back to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible doesn't talk about Jesus being in, he's not, he's not in agony because of the physical pain. He's in agony because of something else. Because listen, the truth of the matter is that tough men can go to a cross and not sweat as much as Jesus did. The truth of the matter is, is you can steal yourself up against physical pain and you can put your head down and you can plow through it and you can do what you got to do and you can make it all the way to the end and you can suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer. And I've been around people who can do that and not even complain about it. But the Bible tells us what we covered last week is that Jesus sweated like drops of blood. And to sweat like that, to agonize like that over six hours does not seem logical to me. So the the nails in his hand must not have been the main point. Were they necessary? Absolutely. But I would offer you up this. The nails in his hands were the mechanical way to show us what was happening. The beating of his back, the disfigurement, was the physical way to try to open up a window for us into what was actually causing him agony. Now, I need you to understand something. So remember remember when we said there was a list of all the things that none of us would ever do? Remember that? So when Paul writes his second letter to the Corinthians, says he became sin who knew no sin. Now, now, what you have to understand is that Jesus, yes, he was tempted, but never even considered sinning. There was no sin in him. It wasn't like he dabbled in a little bit and got saved. It wasn't like you and me who, oh, I wasn't that bad when I was a teenager, but I was a little rowdy. But he saved me and I don't have to do it anymore. No, 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 no. He never once, never, there was never any guilt in him. There was never any shame. There was never any of that stuff in him ever Never in 33 years, never was there a time was the judgment of God in front of him. Never was a time where he was disconnected from God the Father. Never a time where he said, oh, I hope nobody finds that out. Never. And all of a sudden, for the first time, 12 o'clock, it goes dark. And you know all that light sin that we talked about? That was he, That was on him. True. All the sin that we don't tell anybody, but it's still not that bad. That was on him. But you know what else was on him? The sin that you couldn't even fathom. That your mind, if you're in your middle 40s and you've watched a couple R-rated horror movies and you say, ah, that's the worst thing, the the thing they won't even put on on the TV, that thing was cast on on him who never knew what sin was. Agony. I think at 12 o'clock, Jesus wasn't thinking about the nails in his hand. I don't think at noon, Jesus was thinking about the nails in his feet. I think the weight of all the sin that was ever committed, ever would be committed, the most filthy thing a human being could ever think of was heaped upon him who knew no sin in the agony of that judgment was on him. 
And the reason we focus on the physical brutality is because we can't comprehend what that agony felt like. Because I'm telling you today, Jesus did not cry out, Father, these nails hurt. He said, why have you forsaken me? Now, let's get into that for a second. Because the judgment of the Father came on the Son because once all the sin of all humanity was heaped on him, then there had to be a judgment. There had to be a judge. There had to be a sentence. There had to be a penalty paid. There had to be. So all of a sudden, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some people over the years have, have tried. There's been a big argument over the years about, well, did God really turn away from him? And I'm here to tell you, I believe he absolutely turned away from him. He had to. Jesus was being judged, not for your light, I broke the speed limit sin, but for every sin. In that moment, he is being judged by the Father. He's being found guilty. Now, something else we've done, this whole separation idea. Have you ever heard anybody say, hell is being separated from God forever? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Hell is being separated from God forever. When we say things like that, we, we can do a disservice to what actually hell is. And so we do the same thing to hell as we do with the cross. We say, well, hell is separation from God. Well, none of us can understand. Like, I don't know. Well, is that a big deal? And then we'll say, where well, it's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where the worm never dies. And we, we get these descriptors of hell. And we always focus on the physical part of it. Hell's going to be painful. You don't want to go to hell. It's going to hurt. I would propose to you this, that hell is not separation from God like we are understanding like we're just God like I can forget that there's a God because let, let's be honest let's be honest after about a hundred trillion years I forgot there was a God I'd just be like dude this hurts yep still hurts I forgot there was even a God been a hundred trillion years I forgot that I was a God he's not around I would propose to you that's not what hell is. Hell is not being separated from God. It's being under the constant judgment of God. Now, now watch how this works. Can you imagine being in a position where there is no relief from the guilt, shame, agony, that, that all of a sudden, forever, you will be aware that you are in a place Yes, separated from the goodness of God, but even more than that, under the constant judgment and wrath of God, because the thing that you did, you could have gotten forgiven for, but because you ignored the Son of God, because you ignored the grace of God, because you ignored what he did on the cross, now forever you will be under the constant present judgment of the Father, and there is no relief from it. There's no relief from it. So that little bit of guilt you felt because you looked at something you shouldn't have or you had an inappropriate conversation, imagine that times a billion and the guilt and shame of everything you've ever did being heaped on you and then judged minute by minute, second by second, over and over and over again with no end, no salvation, no way to fix it. You are under the constant judgment of God. The fact is, is you're not separated from him. You're inherently aware that he's there. So we do the same thing with hell as we do with the cross. And we say, oh, it's going to hurt. And we're missing the whole story of sin. 
It's not just a matter of fact, Jesus died pretty quick. And if we only focus on the physical part of crucifixion or the physical part of hell, we've missed the worst part of it. Jesus doesn't cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it hurt. He was being judged for your sin and my sin and the sin of the craziest people that have ever walked the planet all at one time. He was separated from the Father in that moment so that you and I would never be separated again. Church, if I could beg you to listen to one thing, there is no earthly or heavenly reason that anybody should suffer the constant judgment of the Father because the Son paid for that already. He was already separated from him. And so now Paul would write, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. There is no power. There is no power anywhere. No circumstance, no nothing. The separation already happened. The judgment has already taken place. All of it has been dealt with. And now you and I wake up every morning living in the grace and mercy of God, having access to the Father nonstop, every day, anytime we want it. Because He was separated, we will never be. Amen? You know, Psalm 22 is what Jesus was quoting that day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I challenge you to go back and read Psalm 22. It was very common in those days. Anybody ever, anybody ever done this? Anybody ever been with a friend and you just said a quote from a movie and then everybody knew what you were talking about? Anybody ever done that? You say a quote from a movie and then the conversation starts, oh yeah, you remember that part, you remember that part? You didn't have to quote the whole movie. Matter of fact, that would be really annoying. Like, dude, the movie was like two hours. You're going to say the whole thing? So we know what that looks like. So oftentimes, oftentimes what they would do is they would quote a verse of a chapter, but then everybody would know the chapter. I challenge you to go back and read Psalm 22. Jesus quotes the first line of John, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You keep reading down through Psalm 22. And at the end of Psalm 22, it's not negative. It is as positive as you can get. There is hope at the end of Psalm 22. The Jewish person listening to Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Would know in that instant, hey, this this is a thing. God, his God turned his back on him. And then they would come to their memory, Psalm 22, that Psalm does not end with, with distress. That Psalm does not end in hopelessness. That Psalm actually ends with, with a rescue. That Psalm actually ends with a redeeming. That song actually ends on a high note with hope filled with it. And all of a sudden, the crucifixion of Christ, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, he was talking about the moment of judgment and darkness over his life being judged for the whole thing, but he was painting a picture of foreshadowing. There is a great hope. It's alive. It's not dead. It is coming. And and I have the power that if I lay it down, I can pick it back up again. Amen? Matthew only records Jesus saying, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then at the very end, he says, um, he cried out in a loud voice. Matthew doesn't tell you what he said. 
around three o'clock. So now we've had three hours, let's say three hours of a regular crucifixion, three hours of an absolute pitch black. From 12 to three now, it's been pitch black. Jesus is suffering under the weight of the sin of the entire human race. Being judged by the Father who has separated himself for the first time. You do know crucifixion did not kill Jesus. The crucifixion didn't kill Jesus. The the Romans did not put Jesus to death. Jesus did suffer on a cross, but he did not die as a result of crucifixion. We find this out because, because another gospel writer says that they wanted to get the bodies down before before sunset, so they sent soldiers out to break the legs of the three men being crucified. So what they would do is they would break their legs and then they would sag down on, the, down on the cross and they would essentially suffocate to death. They get to Jesus, he's already dead. To their shock, he's already dead. They couldn't believe he had died that quick. They couldn't believe that it had happened. So Another gospel writer says that one of the soldiers put a spear into his side and blood and water came out, signifying that he was indeed dead. So I make the case to you that the crucifixion didn't kill Jesus because if a human being could have been responsible for the death of our Savior, then it would have been a little less meaningful than, than, than what he told us, that John recorded he told us in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, he, Jesus says, I'm the shepherd. And nobody takes, I, I, I freely lay my life down. He didn't say to be killed by somebody else. He said, no, no, no. I, 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 died, on, I died on purpose. I did that on purpose. Like I chose when, I chose how, I chose, I chose the math, I chose the whole thing. John chapter 10, verse 14 through 18. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, which he's talking about us. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me. This wasn't a murder. This was God laying himself down. This was Jesus taking on the punishment willingly. This was Jesus suffering willingly. This was Jesus being judged willingly. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life and I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again. The last thing, Matthew doesn't record it. Matthew just says he cries out in a loud voice. Another gospel writer records it like this. It is finished. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Jesus said, I have, the punishment for all sin has been satisfied. And it's finished. It's over. And at that point in time, not because some Roman drove a spike into his hand, not because somebody decided to whip him. No, but because 
The penalty had been paid and he said, it's done. Nothing else needs to be done. There doesn't need to be another second of suffering. There doesn't need to be another second of separation from the father. It is finished. It's over. It's done. No one else on the planet will ever have to do this again. And it says he breathed his last breath. The Romans didn't take it from him. The Jewish leaders didn't take it from him. He decided when it happened. And the same God that decided when it happened would decide when he got up again. He said, if I give it up, I can pick it back up again. So I want to let you know today, church, come on, stand to your feet. When we understand what he did, when we understand the weight that was put on him, when we understand the agony that was put on him, it should burn in our hearts the sacrifice that he made for us. It should cause us to want to run away from hell as fast as we can. It should cause us to run to the cross. Because when he said it's finished, he said nobody else has to do this ever. And hope became alive in that moment. Hope became alive in that moment. The hope for your life, the hope for my life, the hope for your circumstance, the hope for your agony, the hope for your unanswered prayers, the hope for all of it became alive when he said, it's over. It's all done. It's all satisfied. Then when he was separated, we can have the confidence that that will never happen to us. So I want you to do this this morning all across the building, Berkeley Springs online. Can we just acknowledge and lift our hands to heaven and say, God, you did it for me. You suffered for me. You laid your life down for me. You paid the price. The guilt that I feel right now, Lord, I don't have to feel it anymore because you took it for me. Come on, get forgiveness all across the room. Let him forgive you. Let him set you free. Let the power of the Spirit transform your life today. Because when it's finished, it changed everything. church let him heal you this morning let him heal you let him set you free let him set you free from the weight of sin today he can lift it from you the same power that raised christ from the dead can lift your sin this morning and make you new come on cry out to him today